Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken me from, the close, me from my closest friends, and you have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In my morning prayer, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and have been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surrounded me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me, friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Thanks, Daniel. And so on that, I'll pray. Father God, please open up your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Wow. That's in the Bible. Prayers, frequent strength gone. Death looming, friends vanished. Crisis abundant. Cries rejected, doom certain, God apparently silent. These are the thoughts of a wounded man. They are ugly and raw and genuine. You will never see Psalm 88 turn up on a devotional calendar you can buy at Kurong. That is because Psalm 88 is different from all the other Psalms. All Psalms are inspired, yes. But most have a clear purpose. Psalms of praise to glorify God. Psalms of war to call on God's powerful protection. There are psalms about loving God, and there are psalms about the Messiah to come, who has been for us. But there is no psalm like Psalm 88. There's a ray of light at the beginning where the author cries out to the God of his salvation, but that's no ray of hope. That's a light that serves to illuminate the crushing misery of the rest of that passage. There's no satisfying, uplifting line at the end. The author doesn't suddenly whirl around to God as his refuge and protector. Everything is coming apart in his hands, and he just doesn't understand. They call it the saddest psalm, or the weeping psalm, or the black psalm. 
It goes from this early plea for God to hear, may my prayer reach your presence, listen to my cry, and quickly moves into despairing sureness that it's already too late. I am counted among those going down to the pit. I am like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead. I am like the slain lying in the grave, whom you no longer remember, and who are cut off from your care. The psalm goes on heavy-hearted to point back at God as sovereign over all things, and therefore it must be part of his will that this terrible suffering is happening. He says, your wrath is weighing heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You distanced me from my friends. You made me repulsive to them. I am shut in and I cannot go out. And it continues on through that painful line, a faithful man who feels rejected by God. But I call to you for help, Lord. In the morning my prayer meets you. Why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? It's an incredibly beautiful psalm if you're the kind of person who likes tragedy and who enjoys sad poetry. That final line, darkness is my only friend, leaves you confused and looking over at Psalm 89 hoping for some kind of closure, but no completely different psalm, not a sequel. This really is a sacred psalm in God's holy word. A poem of a man proclaiming that all his life God has been crushing him with tragic loss. And the Spirit of God inspired these words and made them a part of his holy scripture for generations. To be read in churches, shared with friends, meditated on, studied carefully. But I'm pretty sure most of us have not heard a sermon about Psalm 88. And this leads us to the natural following question. What reason could the Holy Spirit possibly have to inspire such a bleak piece of Scripture? What is the message of it, that at the worst of times God will leave you swinging in the wind? What could be the possible application that we should go forth joyfully because we don't have it as bad as the guy who wrote this psalm? I mean, we have to remember that the words that come into Scripture are not randomly selected. This psalm was written by someone who really experienced this, or certainly felt he did, to the point where prayer for him wasn't even help me, it was my life is ruined, help me understand. And those words were inspired by God to be written in his holy scriptures. Can you imagine any occasion that you might sit down with someone and read through this depressing swamp of human sadness? What is it even doing here? And is it therefore okay for a believer in Jesus to feel so depressed that it feels to them as if God doesn't care? Is it possible that they can feel this way? I want to suggest to you that the Black Psalm offers something that no other piece of scripture does. A particular liberation. A freedom to live our faith in the real world as real people without guilt or doubt. Psalm 88 contains something precious and often neglected. It gives license to despair. Instantly, many Christians feel their senses tingling. Sweet, sugary, and appealing Bible verses and moments will begin fizzling to the surface of our minds trying to combat this idea. 
Everything from Joshua's be strong and courageous to God's righteous words smacking down the sulking Job in the dust after his own tragedy. Tragedy. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Whether from a whirlwind or a burning bush, God is constantly telling people that he will provide, he will protect, he is in control. And we are understanding rightly that we must take him at his word. But I would like to right now see if we can dare to talk about something we don't talk about a lot, not in Christian circles. And admit that sometimes, even as Christians, saved and secure as we are, connected to the Holy Spirit, sometimes we can be so battered and bullied by the world outside that God's many wonderful promises of providence and protection and peace do not make us joyful again. We turn to God's word, we pray, and God's answer seems to get lost in transit somewhere. Now it's possible you have never felt this way. Perhaps no matter how down and depressed you get, a shot in the arm prayer session is all you require and then you are singing how great thou art in the shower again that morning. If that's you, good. God bless your charmed life. I have no problem with you or beef of any kind, but I promise you there are Christians like me and I think they might be the majority. The Christian who sometimes feels as though they are completely cut off from God and while we know intellectually that we aren't, that there is no, no pit or place in the world that is so deep that it is far away from God, Emotionally, spiritually, we feel isolated. And in times like that, when we are miserable, we know we are to call on God. And when God chooses not to flood us with the joy of heaven at that time, a funny thing happens. We feel worse. Guilt creeps in. We know God should be all we need. And we remember someone talking about our need to be happy warriors and we're failing. We're not towing the party line, we're not keeping up the appearance, and goodness, if an unsaved person sees us, they may get the impression that Jesus is not the way to happiness all the time. Jesus is the cure for sin. Hardships are part of being human, and they will be around until he comes again. And we have a sympathetic instinct, which means that we hate to see people miserable and suffering. So if we meet someone who is depressed, it is our instinct to try and cheer them up. And if you've ever tried that with a person who's really far down in some dark place, I'm sure you'll agree the approach offers, at best, mixed success. When people are that far down, like the person who wrote this psalm in sadness and suffering, they need time in that place before they can come out the other side. If they're ready, you might call to someone like that with a psalm like Psalm 30, which says, Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down in the pit. If they hear that and they're ready, then that's probably the thing they needed to hear. But if they're not ready, if that sadness is fresh and they're still walking through it, then Psalm 30 will have nothing to offer that person. 
That person doesn't need cheering up or even reassurance that things are going to get better. It would be like going to a funeral and saying, aren't you a bunch of sad sacks? Let's turn those frowns upside down. How about a song? It would be insulting. People would say, we're feeling sad right now. How dare you try and pave over that? Happy people need happy psalms. Anxious people need anxious psalms. People clinging to hope need hopeful psalms, and it shouldn't surprise us terribly much that depressed, despairing people to become closer to God need a depressed, despairing psalm. This is the message of Psalm 88. There will be days when everything goes bad. More than that, there will be lives in which everything seems to go wrong. We call it bad luck or an unpleasant part of, of God's plan or life just being tough. If you haven't met someone going through a life that seems unreasonably rough, you probably haven't spent a lot of time meeting people. But you don't have to lose everything for this to be your psalm or to be relevant to you. This is the cry of the heart of someone who has lost something incredibly precious to them, a parent, a child, a loved one, a friend. And when someone loses something that precious, someone that close to them, I promise you the last thing they need to hear right at that moment is be strong and courageous. Or even that the Lord is their shepherd. In those times, nothing uplifting that you can say will help. There is no verse to cheer someone up from that kind of sadness. If you've ever had a bad breakdown situation in a relationship, and someone told you in your time of sadness, well-meaningfully, that time heals all wounds, you may have noticed that that wasn't actually terribly helpful. And it wouldn't be terribly helpful unless you had some way to go to sleep for the next three weeks and wake up when time had indeed healed all wounds. No, there is no secular snappy line about the bright side of the street that is a magical cure to our darkest moments. And if we are honest, then we don't have a magical cure either with verses about walking through the valley of the shadow of death and fearing no evil. The best thing that we can do is just be there for that person. Scripture promises that the Lord is faithful, that he will give peace and joy to those who are suffering and mourning. But we have to be careful how we handle that promise. It's tempting to try and use it like a cure in itself, like presenting someone with that promise should be enough to blow away the clouds of depression and stand them in the unobstructed light of God. But that's not exactly what Scripture promises. And I think our experience confirms something else. Imagine that you had a friend with a terrible heart defect, and he's fortunate enough to have the finest cardio surgeon in the country available. A donor was found, the heart matched, surgery was a complete success and you were fortunate enough to be there as this friend wakes up. And you squeeze their hand, you say, congratulations, my friend, you've got a new heart. The defect in your old heart, gone. Will never bother you again. This heart is flawless and beautiful. Now let's head down 12 flights of stairs, get into the car and go home. 
But strangely and faithlessly, your friend just groans and struggles to breathe, right? So you try again. I know you're in a little pain right now, but you need to understand that that old heart is gone and the new one is in place. And someone died so you could have that heart. And quite frankly, your lack of willingness to step out of this bed immediately after surgery is suggesting to me that maybe you don't really believe in surgery after all. It would be absurd. There's nothing wrong with the heart, but the pain is real, and no amount of reassurance in the surgeon's skill will change that. The surgeon's skill is not in question. And likewise, with believers suffering from depression, God's faithfulness is not in question. But that pain and depression is nonetheless real. And God's work in sending Jesus to die as a sacrifice for our sins promises recovery from that pain. But God's word is not a drug that you can just pump someone full of until they don't feel the cares of the world anymore. It promises that all of us who die in his saving promise will see each other again on the other side of death where all mourning has turned into dancing. But if we could not feel that real despair, we would be so detached from this world that God has commanded us to live in. And we'd have no perspective to be able to reassure and remember that most people haven't found God's reassuring promises yet. And to those despairing people, God wants to send us. He wants to know them. He wants to come into their darkness and be with them. And then after that sadness has been honored to shine a light to lead them out. Now, our concern, our passion as a church is to respond to the world as Jesus would have us respond. How does Jesus respond to despair? Well, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 11, there's a sto the, uh, story of the raising of Lazarus. That's a sermon on its own, but the summary of it is that Jesus' friend is dying. Jesus knows he is going to die. He deliberately does not stop that death from happening because he knows he is going to raise him from the dead. And he comes to Lazarus' family four days after he's buried. And they weep at him saying, if you came right away, you could have saved him. And incredibly, Jesus weeps with them. And it is incredible because after they've wept and had enough time to kind of settle down, he gently asks to see the body and raises the dead man back to life. Now some commentators say that He's weeping because of the lack of faith that they wouldn't believe he would raise Lazarus again. I don't think the text says that. John doesn't seem to think so. His friend is dead, and even though he's going to raise them, raise him a little later, he honors their despair by weeping with them. And enthusiastically enough that the disciples go aside and mumble that, wow, he really must have loved that guy. Jesus goes into their sadness and dwells with them, even though he has the power to immediately restore Lazarus. Only after he has honored that sadness does he literally turn their mourning into dancing and raise his friend from the dead. Now, we don't have the supernatural power to remove the effects of sin from the world, to reverse death at our whim. 
but that's not a temptation for us. We do have the power to go into people's sadness, however, to honor that despair, to be able to go into it and just be there, to be ready to weep alongside those who are suffering in this world, a world racked by sin, to be that for our brothers and sisters and even strangers. It's the example that Jesus sets when confronting people who are suffering like the author of this psalm. So what is the application then for that psalm? How do we use this piece of black as night poetry? Well, for a start, we use it carefully, bringing it to the attention of believers who feel cut off from God or who have never accepted God or those who have never accepted God because he doesn't seem to fit their experience of pain. Counseling is something I have a soft spot for. I've always been drawn to people with depressive personalities, those who find themselves in despair. I have a friend, I'll call him Brian, who wrote to me a while ago and said, Yesterday morning, I asked God to give strength to the world. I cried to him, let there be no more pain. Last night, my entire world was crushed. I have never felt more hurt in my entire life. Now, I usually indulge a kind of Christian reflex for most of my life in situations like this. I want to say to him, pray and pray like you've never prayed before and pour out your heart to God and he will heal you and restore you like that. It's true that he needs to pray, that he needs to pour out his heart to God. But presenting that as an immediate solution to despair is not what he needs right now. So I told him, I have no consolation for you. Check out Psalm 88. That sense of despair and that God has abandoned you. Sounds like what you're feeling. And in response, he went off expecting to find something that I had chosen fluffy to pick him up and reads this black psalm, this psalm of no hope, and writes back, wow, Psalm 88. I've never read anything more true for this moment. And isn't it just like our God to do that? Psalms of hope for those with little hope and one solitary psalm of hopelessness just so that those who have no hope can see that God recognizes their despair, that they're not left out of Scripture. It's an irony too perfect to come from anything but God's design. These dark verses are the key to the most broken of hearts. They speak of a God who is present even when we cry out to him and feel as though he is not listening. But he was listening to the psalmist. He immortalized that psalm forever in his word. A piece of writing that does not promise a sudden cure, but comes into that darkness and is just willing to be there. Sometimes God will act supernaturally in a person's life. Opening up that despair, perhaps using you to open up a new world of hope to that person through the gospel. But many more times, he'll bring you alongside someone who is ruined and distraught and feels like God doesn't care about them. This is a staple of Christian kindness, being able to come alongside someone like that. And the principle of Psalm 88 is a powerful tool in those times. Despair is not the enemy here. It's a reality. We can't just chase it away or fight it. 
must be addressed, but not watered off, attacked. We don't need to find the right voice to refill someone's soul on our own power. We don't even need to seize upon a despairing person and tell them, truly and joyfully, though it may be announced, that Jesus loves them. We just need to be there. And then, when you've shown that the God you serve works in the real world where all the bad stuff actually happens, the world they are living in, then, only then, can that despairing heart start to learn about the God who does hear their prayers. Let's pray. Father God, you have power over all things and presence in all places. Please guard us from despair. Fortify our hope and faith. Let us feel the strength of your spirit every day. But Lord, when those days come where our judgment deceives us and we feel as though your presence must be far away, please care for us. Give us, brothers and sisters, willing just to be there and to help us stand again. Help us be those brothers and sisters to the ones in our church who might go through such dark places and might struggle with the guilt of feeling abandoned. And Lord, give us the means and the opportunity to work with those who are in that pit of depression but don't know you. Help us to know how to act, how to speak, how to love that person in a way that leads them closer to you because we know that we do have a hope for a day where all tears are turned into laughter and all mourning turned into dancing by your power. And we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.